we just heard words read to us of uh, supreme and profound assurance, particularly verse 28 that people so often rely upon, where Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that is the promise of Jesus himself to the believer, that there's no power in heaven, excuse me, or on earth that is able to separate us from him. And just as a father holds a firm grip on the hand of his little girl as they walk in the midst of something that is frightening to her, even though he is fully able to overcome it, in the same way Jesus Christ holds a firm grip on uh, our hands in the midst of whatever troubles or enemies or dangers we face in life. It's not the steadiness of our grip on him that matters ultimately. It's the the firmness of his eternal uh, grip on us. But like all verses in the Bible, it's possible to take this one out of its context and misapply it. Like any verse in the Bible makes its greatest sense and has its greatest application when it's understood in the context in which it's spoken. And this is one of which that's particularly true. And when a person takes this one verse out and applies these wonderful words to himself or herself, knowing shall snatch them out of my hand. If they do that in in a mistaken belief, uh, thank you, in a... um, If they do that in a mistaken belief of a safety that they don't really have, then there's going to be a problem. It's like trusting a net to catch you, but the net isn't really there, or uh, a hand to grip you, but there isn't a hand holding yours. Every truth in the Bible has a context, and this one we want to think about the context so we can correctly understand it and allow the assurance that it gives to have its most power in our lives. Now, the context of this particular promise, no one will snatch them out of my hand, is in John chapter 10. And it happens that this conversation that Jody just read to us is right before the final confrontation Jesus has with the Jewish leaders in the vicinity of the temple. After this, it moves into other directions of Jesus' teaching of his disciples, the Last Supper, the high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest, and so forth. But here it is, him teaching in the vicinity of the temple, particularly in Solomon's colonnade. The occasion is what we now call Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. It occurs in December. And uh, Jesus has been teaching right before this using a specific image. It's not really a parable. It's just the image of shepherding. There's a shepherd and there's sheep. And he's able to take that because it's so common in people's knowledge in the ancient world. It was like the universal experience of people to see shepherds and sheep or to have shepherds and and sheep or uh, anything like that, that, that Jesus could refer to it and take his teaching in a number of different directions. Like if I introduced right now the topic, uh, people's use of cell phones in public. I could go in a multitude of directions and talk about uh, how they misuse them or use them rightly or whatever. And that's what Jesus does here. So in one hand, early in the chapter, he says, I am the good shepherd. In another place, he says, I am the gate to the sheepfold. That is like the enclosure, the pen in which the sheep are found. He uses it all from this basic image of shepherd and sheep. And what happens when our passage picks up is that his listeners have been a little confused by what he said 
probably particularly by the idea, I lay down my life for the sheep. He's communicating, I am willing to die for my sheep. But they think, well, that's kind of silly. A shepherd wouldn't want to die for a sheep. There would be no intention because if you were to die, the sheep would be completely unprotected. Why, why would he want to die? So they ask him this question. And the question is, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, and that word means Messiah, the Hebrew word, Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, they don't ask him this question because they're thinking about whether or not to accept his teachings and follow him. It's rather plain that they would like him to make some clear statement of the fact that he is the Messiah so they can grab on that and use it as an occasion to take him to court. Now, only one time in the Gospel of John up to this point has Jesus said, told someone, he is the Messiah. It was to an individual, a Samaritan woman. He has not said that in the presence of any groups and not in the presence of any Jewish people. And the reason is probably pretty clear why he hasn't unambiguously declared himself to be the Messiah. The idea of Messiah in the first century was, for many of the Jewish people, filled with a mixture of correct understanding and incorrect understanding. So if he used the word, it would easily have been misunderstood. For example, they could read the Old Testament and see that the Messiah was to be a triumphant king who would throw off foreign oppressors. And that's what they were expecting. But there are other parts of the Old Testament that spoke of the Messiah as being a suffering servant. And they didn't really figure how that fit together with this one. And so they ignored it. And if Jesus had declared himself to be the Messiah, this is all they would have thought of. Military, political terms. And they wouldn't have understand that he came first to be the suffering servant. And he would come a second time to be the reigning king. So in order to avoid uh, being misunderstood, he never used the title with his Jewish listeners. Yet the fact is over and over he has communicated concepts that uh, unmistakably point to the fact that he is the one whom God has sent to be the redeemer of Israel, promised in the Old Testament. And that's why in the passage that was just read, Jesus answers them when they said, tell us plainly. He said, I told you, verse 25, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, it's those last words that, that are the context I want us to note carefully. It, these words of supreme assurance, no one will snatch them out of my hand, have to be understood to have a qualification They're not just spoken to any person. They're not even spoken simply to a person who likes Jesus. They're spoken to his sheep. Some people, he said, are not a part of my sheep. You, he said to some of his listeners, are not among my sheep. And for those people, there would be no assurance because the promise that he's about to make would not apply to them. So the question we have to ask this morning is, what does it mean to be one of Jesus' sheep? How would a person know whether or not he or she is one of Jesus' sheep? And what I want to show you in the passage is that you have to understand verse 28 and the tremendous promise that is there and in verse 29 with verse 27. 
They all go together as a whole. They are all the saying of Jesus. And they tell us that there are two concepts that have to be understood. The first I'm going to describe by the word called, and the second one by the word kept. Those who belong to Jesus, who are truly his sheep, are both called and kept. And you must be called before you can be kept. And this great assurance is only given to those who are the called and the kept, not just to any person in general. Now, what I'd like you to do is, if you have a Bible, open it up to this passage. If you don't have it open, it's on page 896. Because we're going to keep coming back and taking a deep dive into verses 27 and 28. But I'm going to be showing you other passages. So um, I want you to just stay on that page. and, And when I refer back to it, you'll be able to look at it. Again, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, first, what we see in verse 27, we hear Jesus say that those who belong to him, his sheep, are called, and they follow him. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, the word call isn't used, but obviously that's what, that's what the image is. The shepherd calls out and the sheep are attuned to the voice of their particular shepherd. And so they turn and begin to follow him out of the sheepfold and out to where they will find pasture. And that's the line of thought we need to follow out a bit here. Jesus' sheep are here identified as a specific group of people. Not all people, specific group. And they are told, we are told they are those people whom the Father has given to him. Now, it's found in the passage, again, in verse 29. He says, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Now, this roots Jesus' words in this passage, uh, in the um, plan of salvation, as I often call it. Theologians call it the eternal counsel of redemption. And it's a fact that you find in many Bible passages that lead you to understand, the Bible reader, that in eternity past, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, determined to save a group of people. The Father selects those whom he gives to the Son. The Son redeems them, and the Spirit applies in time that saving work to the individual. And these are the people given to the Son. It says in verse 29, but let me show you a couple of other places where this concept is stated clearly. One of them is in uh, John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's called, uh, it's where he's on the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper. And he prays this prayer that's recorded in full in the chapter before he's arrested. And he begins the prayer with these words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now there it says it, that there's a group of people given to the son, and the son comes for the purpose of gathering those people, and they're referred to in that prayer, in that passage a number of times. That's just the first time. 
Or there's another very important passage. To skip over a number of places in the New Testament, there's this key passage in the Old Testament where 700 years before Christ, the coming of the Messiah is promised. And he's promised to come as a suffering servant. And in the passage, Isaiah 53, it describes the death of the Messiah for sinners in detail. The suffering servant will come and he will reveal God's will and uh, teach God's word, but he will be rejected. And it says in the passage, he'll be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It says the Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. It says that even though he's innocent, he's going to be buried in the grave of a rich man, which actually happened when a wealthy man named uh, Joseph of Arimathea gave his uh, tomb for the use of Jesus' burial. And then after that, this is what we're told in the passage. Isaiah 53. When his soul, the Messiah, makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now this is describing what will be true of the Messiah after that point where he makes his soul an offering for guilt, or it refers to a specific kind of sacrifice in the temple, in the book of Leviticus, a guilt offering. There's an atoning sacrifice of an animal in the place of a sinner. What will happen is he will see his offspring. Well, who are those offspring? They are the people whom the Father has given to the Son. And out of the anguish of his soul, he'll see and be satisfied. What is it he will see and be satisfied? He will see the many, as are referred to later, who are, through his work, accounted righteous. The New Testament word, justified. The many who are justified because he's going to bear their iniquities. These are the sheep that Jesus is referring to. And he says to some, you are not of my sheep. But he makes this great promise to the sheep. They are the people God the Father gave to the Son to rescue for the kingdom of God. So in John chapter 10, we're told that uh, I am the good shepherd in the passage before was read to us. I know my own and my own know me, he says in verse 14, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So uh, the, the Son was going to come and part of the purpose of his death was to make atonement for those whom the Father had given to him. Now, these are the sheep Jesus was referring to in verse 27. I want you to look at it again. My sheep hear my voice. That hearing of his voice is the call of the gospel. The shepherd calls and the sheep respond. However, it says here uh, three things in verse 27 that need to be put together. I, uh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I can identify them individually and particularly and they follow me. Now, that's the gospel call. The word call is used in the Bible in a number of ways. Uh, One way that it's used is the general call of the gospel. That is, any time the gospel is proclaimed, a large group of people potentially may hear it. They come under the sound of it. They can take it in and listen to it. That's the general call. It might be summarized in the last chapter of the Bible towards the end when it says, whoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. 
the general call of the gospel. But the Bible also uses it, and in this place it's obviously referring to a more specific call. The word call is used a number of times to refer to an effective selective call that is internal. It's not just a general hearing of the gospel, but it is given to those who hear and respond to it. My sheep hear my voice, and they respond. How? They follow me. Now, where do you find that? Well, there's a lot of places, but one of them is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is writing to a church and he's calling them those who have been called into the fellowship of Christ. As Christ calls a person and they respond in faith and they are brought into his flock, his worldwide flock, the church. Or there's another passage in 1 Thessalonians. And that says, to this he called you, through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not referring just to a general fact that some people hear the gospel. It's this specific, effective call that internally, by the penetration of the Spirit, draws a person to Christ. And that's what he's referring to when he says, my sheep hear my voice. Just as an animal is able to recognize the voice of the one who feeds it and cares for it and pets it and protects it and so forth. And when they hear you call them or start to open the can of food or whatever it is, they come. In the same way, we are told God extends his effective call into the heart of those who hear and respond to the Bible, to the message. My sheep hear my voice. You, you might think this happens all the time, though we don't usually observe it. But you could think of it as a group of people sitting and listening. And here's one high school girl, and she is totally bored by what the person is saying up front. She's hearing it, but, but it's not penetrating her at all. She's just waiting until she can get out of there. She hears the general call, the words that are being spoken, but next to her is her best friend, and her best friend is sitting in rapt attention, listening carefully to everything that is said, noting every word and making internal, personal application. Goes home that afternoon and doesn't just think about anything, but is thinking about that message the message and promise of Jesus, that's the effective, spirit-empowered internal call. That's what verse 27 is about. And he says, I know them. Jesus knows his sheep intimately and personally. We often think of salvation as a person coming to know God, and that's not improper. The Bible does use that terminology. But it, if you want to put a fine point on it, it, it's more coming to be known by God. That's what Paul says, exactly that. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9, Paul says, now that we have come to know God, and then he stops himself, and it's almost like he corrects himself. He wants to say it more, more precisely. Now that we have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. As Paul says elsewhere, the Lord knows those who are his. So it's this personal intimate knowledge of the individual whom he has called, and he says, finally, they follow me. This call imparts life to the soul so that the person called effectively by God responds in faith, and out of the new life that God breathes into him or her, he begins to follow 
And this may take a long time, but the person begins to make slow changes in lifestyle and behavior and thinking and relationships with people. And this following of Jesus isn't the reason they are called. God doesn't call a person because he is following him. So he decides, well, I'll call you then. It's the other way around. Very clearly, they follow because they're given life. They follow because they've been called. The call has to come first. So those who belong to Jesus, his sheep, first of all, are those who are effectively called by God to be one of his sheep, part of his flock in in the worldwide people of God. He calls, he knows, we follow. So Jesus' sheep are first of all those who are called. And then, and only then, can you move to the next verse. Then he says, those whom he calls, he will keep eternally. Those who hear his voice and follow him are protected. I give them eternal life, verse 28, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, essentially, the three things are saying the same thing in a kind of stair step of increasing strength. First, he says, I give them eternal life. We usually think of eternal life as living forever. That's eternal life. But that's only a result of eternal life. Eternal life is a quality of life. It's God's own quality of life that by his spirit he implants in the heart of a person whom he calls. And when he does that, he imparts to us what is called in First John the seed. The seed of God remains in us, we're told. And that seed is capable when we respond to it, of growing and producing fantastic things and changes in our life. But it's first a quality of life. That, however, shouldn't blind us to the fact that our first response, that eternal life is living forever, is not wrong. Eternal life, by its very quality, is eternal. And so Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And secondly, they will never perish. I mean, after all, how can a person who possesses an unending source of life ever perish? Because the life is inside of them. How could a person be spiritually lost? And to strengthen the insurance, the assurance one final time, he says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I want you to know he uses the future tense. No one will snatch them out of my hand. As though looking into the future as this eternal life continues, there is no point that could be imagined in which um, there is a lessening of security for the sheep. They are held in the grip of Jesus. But let's just note, he doesn't end there. He adds one more verse. In one sense, unnecessary, but it's so interesting. He says that this security is not only promised by his words, but by God the Father himself. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Well, you note the one change in how he worded that. He says concerning himself, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Future tense. And he says concerning the father, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The first is a a statement that there is no future possibility of being lost. That, of course, is security. But with the Father, it's a statement of power. There is nothing on heaven and earth that would have any ability to separate the sheep from God's protection. 
and the larger purpose of the book, the next words are the, the key. He then adds, having said that, I and the Father are one. In other words, whatever the purposes and the power of the Father, mine is the same. He makes himself equal with God. And in the larger purpose of the book, what happens at that point is, well, the hearers got more than they bargained for. They said, we want you to declare plainly that you're Messiah. And instead of doing that, he declared plainly that he was equal with God. And that's why the next verse says they picked up stones again to stone him. And that is their final confrontation before the arrest in chapter 18. In other words, they got the evidence they were looking for. But that's another sermon for another day. I, I want to look at verses 27, 28. This incredible assurance. Nothing can wrestle us out of the grip of God if we are his sheep. Now the real question is, how can you know if you are one of Jesus' sheep? If no one will wrestle him out of the grip, the sheep, out of the grip of God, then the important thing is to understand that these verses don't just have automatic application to any person who might take those words of Jesus. No one will snatch them out of my hand and say, I'm safe forever, regardless of what their moral standing is with Jesus or or whether they trust in him or anything like that. There are so many people who just believe that every promise of the Bible must apply to every person who's ever been alive because they figure I'm such a fine person and how could God ever be angry with me? And, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm a nice guy and I've tried to do the best I can and God will accept me. But that's not what these verses are saying. There are those who are not his sheep and they do not believe in him. There are those who are his sheep and they both believe in him and they follow him. And those are the two operative words that are used here. Faith and following. He tells those who are listening that at least some of them are not as sheep. He says, you, because you do not believe. That is the first thing it means to hear and respond to the message. When a person hears, they are hearing the call of God to believe that Jesus is the payment for their sins. That God expects nothing more than Jesus and what he did. And it's a great transaction that's offered in the gospel in which I place my trust in Jesus Christ and him alone and his righteous character, his perfect standing with God and his payment for my sins. The benefits of that are transferred to my account and I am pardoned before God. But then Jesus adds, it's not only those who do that, but those who follow him. That is, they hear his words and they begin to follow him in their lifestyle, seeking to frame their lives in submission to him and his teaching. And those two things are both important, according to Jesus here, faith and following. But what is very important is to distinguish those two, even though they can't be separated. Those two concepts Faith in Jesus and following Jesus are, are intimately related to one another, but they need to be distinguished. I have a son who's about to turn 30 in a couple of months. His name is Ben. He's the youngest. And uh, Ben now lives in the Chicago area, works in the hospital. He's married to a lovely young woman, uh, and he's a good man. He's a hardworking fellow and uh, responsible and loving Now, the fact is, 30 years ago this fall, my wife and I, humanly speaking, gave him life. 
We gave it to him as a gift. We did it intentionally, and we brought him into the world. And then we took him home to his brother and two sisters, who were also very small at that time, and we propped him up in his bouncy seat right there in the middle of the living room, and uh, our family room. And here's, here's what we didn't do. We didn't say, okay, kid, um, we brought you into the world so that you would become a loving, responsible adult, so get to it. Of course, we didn't do that. We propped him up there in his bouncy seat, and we played with him, and we sang with him, and we let his older brother and sisters poke at him and pet him, and, you know, it had to toughen him up a little bit to face life, and uh, we changed his diapers, and we fed him, and all of those things. That's what we did with him, but the fact is, we knew that we didn't have a child so that we could, for the rest of our lives, prop him up in the bouncy seat and play with him, right? We did, at least we understood, the way this whole program works is you bring him into the world and you help them grow up so that they become responsible adults. And while that wasn't in in our minds every moment of every day, in the long run, it really was the purpose. We wanted to help him become an adult and to be responsible and productive and loving and gentle. And what you need to understand is when God breathes life into us and we experience that life, And we know what it means to be pardoned and restored to God through faith in Jesus Christ. His overall purpose is to grow us up for his kingdom. And those two things really go together, but they do need to be distinguished. Children distinguish it easily if they're brought up in a Christian home. This wasn't my experience, but a child being brought up in a Christian home may hear the gospel, and it's possible that they may believe it as a very young child. However, as they get older, they're going to have to make choices as to whether they'll follow him. Spiritually speaking, their following of him and the choices that they make may indicate whether or not they truly understood and trusted Christ to begin with. But it's going to be, in their own experience, kind of a point in time where they start having to reckon with, did I... uh, uh, believe this because of my parents, just because that's what they do, or is this for myself? And there are all kinds of moral choices and lifestyle choices they're going to have to make as they go on. And for a child growing up that way, those two things are two different experiences. But for me, it wasn't different. I was 19 years old, and I happened to be in a very healthy uh, fellowship of Christian people. And, and so when I trusted in Christ, I I was already trying to follow him in some ways, even though I didn't understand the gospel, because that's what people were doing. I was a part of that, and I just began to do it initially, and I didn't experience it as like two separate experiences. All I'm trying to say is that this supremely assuring promise of God is that those who are called to belong to Jesus are kept for eternity. Everyone whom Jesus calls to himself, he also keeps forever, but you have to be called before you can be kept. And so that means you have to believe the gospel and follow him. As imperfectly as that's going to be and as stumblingly as that's going to be, that's what it means to apply this passage to yourself. Now, that may be something you've never done before. I I don't know, but um, it may be that you've been trying to understand, as I was for so long, how this whole message fits together. There's all these elements that you have in your mind uh, like a jigsaw puzzle, and you're trying to put them together to understand Jesus and what he wants from you. 
And, 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 and when that comes together, it's an understanding that Jesus died for me, and through faith in him, I can have eternal life and be pardoned and brought into relationship with God. Well, I would say that now is the time for you to do that. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. This is a monthly experience for those of us who are part of this church family. And this is a good time because of the focus at the end of the service this morning for you to reflect on what does it mean for you to trust in Christ yourself. This is a good time for you to tell God that uh, you are trusting Jesus. It's also a time when we reflect on the seriousness with which we are seeking to follow him, those of us who are already part of his sheep. And you should ask God to begin to conform you to Jesus' character and attitudes and relationships and to his teachings. This would be a great time for you to do that in your heart alone. And if you do that, I hope after the service you'll tell someone that you've done that. But for most of us, this is a time when we come to Jesus and we reflect on our own lives. We're coming as his people, as his sheep, those who have been called. And we're stumblingly trying to follow him. And this provides us an opportunity to kind of slow down for a few minutes and to reflect on what's going on inside of our lives and to, again, acknowledge his grace and his authority over us and to agree with him that we need his power to live out the life that he has given to us. So let's pray that that will be our experience this morning. Our Lord, we come to you and thank you that you have given to us this simple way of remembering you. We know that's more in scripture than just a a physical or a mental act of remembering what you did, but it is an experience in which we might place ourselves back in that original setting in which you broke the bread and you passed the cup. And those words that Jesus spoke at that time, my body broken for you, my blood is shed for you, that those words might be spoken not just to those who sat at table with him, but to us as well. When we take these elements in our hands, we might acknowledge that God's word of assurance comes to us not only through our ears and into our minds, but that same word comes to us in our hands in a piece of bread and in a cup. And we enter into that enjoyment of you and your benefits. We pray that this would be a time when we experience that, both as individuals and as a family of your people here. And we pray that you would give to us that sense of peace and security that as we have been called, we are also kept by you for eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name.